welcome to Infatuated, the podcast for people who really fancy a good story. I'm Emily. And I'm Rebecca. And this week we're back with a very special treat for you all. Well, for us, really. (laughs) Um, Today, it's a little bit different. We're going to be doing a full spoiler episode on Erin Morgenstern's The Starless Sea. And if you followed us from the beginning, you'll know that Emily did an episode on the Starless Sea way back in season one. But ever since she did it, I've been dying to read it. So now I have, and we have to unpack all of it together. So you'll still be getting plenty of quotes, but there will be spoilers. And we are basically going to fangirl for the next hour or two. Yeah, so basically we have like talking points that we are going to hit but it might be a bit chatty, a bit chaotic, and a bit tangential. Yeah, so enjoy. <laughs> enjoy the chaos. Um, I'm excited. I think it's going to be fun. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's fair to say that we are both infatuated with the Starless Sea mm-hmm. this week. But for anyone who hasn't heard the first episode on it, do you want to take it away and explain it a little bit? Yes. So, The Starless Sea came out in 2019, and it's Erin Morgenstern's second novel. Zachary Ezra Rollins is our main character. He's a grad student in emerging new media, so video games, and he has stumbled across a book of short stories called Sweet Sorrows in his university library. But what's special about this book is that one of the short stories is about him. And all of a sudden, his world is flipped on its head because... You know, that must be weird. <laughs> um, and it's also proof that he let an opportunity slip through his fingers. So Zachary then sets out on a quest to find this place that he missed a chance to go to before. And when he does, he ends up entwined in a much larger story. Also, just structurally, the novel's made up of lots of different books. So there's Sweet Sorrows, um, the book of short stories that Zachary finds. There are two other books along the same lines, Fortunes and Fables and The Ballad of Simon and Eleanor. And there are also stories on pages ripped out of those books. And there are some diary entries from a character called Cat, who is searching for Zachary after he disappears on this quest. So The Starless Sea, the novel, is all of these stories alternating with Zachary's plotline. And they all connect. But The Starless Sea, the place, is a place in Zachary's plotline. Yes. So, when yes. we refer to the Starless Sea, yeah. we are talking about the book, but also the place. Yes. <laughs> nice and confusing. <laughs> <laughs> it's already chaotic. I love yes. It. <laughs> so, yeah, we start. We, we decided that for the benefit of you all, we would do some talking points to try and keep us on track. <laughs> so, the first one that we decided to take on was the favourite character from mm-hmm. this novel. So, Emily, who is your favourite character? So... Just to spoil the next topic, sorry, but we're going to talk about our most relatable character today as well. Yes. And my favourite character and the one I relate to the most is the same, Okay. um, which is Zachary. So what I'm going to do for this section is tell you about my second favourite character, Dorian, because I wasn't going to just skip a segment. But what I'm actually going to do is just read you some scenes between Dorian and Zachary. Um, I'm basically doing like my favourite relationship instead of my favourite character. Love it. Their romance is one of my favourite romances ever because it's just really gentle. Mm. Like, they do have an instantaneous connection, but the most we see of them romantically is, like, a kiss, Mm -hmm. and that's, like, the end of the book. So I guess you could call it, like, a slow burn. It's more about the connection and the unspoken words and, like, fleeting touches and things like that. 
So the first quote I want to read is what I like to call drunken story time. Um, I love this part. Yeah, Dorian's a great storyteller and this is him recounting a story from Sweet Sorrows, which I actually read out on the episode that I talked about the starlessy before. So yeah, this is Zachary going to Dorian's room at the harbour, the harbour of the Starless Sea. I also like, just sorry, tangentially, I like that their romance isn't strictly romantic. Like they have just like a... It's just like a connection. A connection. Yeah. And you don't really, like neither of them fully understands it. Yeah. To begin with. I think that's nice. Anyway, carry on. He finds himself in a familiar tiled hall. He stops at a door that practically disappears into the darkness. He stands indecisively in front of it. There is a line of light visible underneath. Zachary knocks on Dorian's door once, and then again, and is about to leave when the door swings open. Dorian looks at him. No, through him. Eyes wide yet tired, and Zachary thinks maybe he was asleep, but then realises that he's fully dressed, but badly buttoned and barefoot, and there's a glass of scotch in his hand. You have come to kill me, Dorian says. I... What? Zachary answers, but Dorian continues without pausing, narrating. The Owl King said, I have, the swordsmith daughters asked. Are you really, really drunk right now? Zachary asked, looking past Dorian at the nearly empty decanter on the desk. They find a way to kill me, always. They have found me here, even in dreams. Dorian turns back to the room on the word here the scotch in his glass following a half second behind and splashing out the side. You are really, really drunk right now. Zachary follows as Dorian continues telling the story, partly to him and partly to the room in general. Fortunes and Fables sits open on the desk next to the scotch. Zachary glances at it and sees it is open to the story about the three swords, the illustration of an owl atop a pile of books on a tree stump covered in candles, the illustrator having ignored the part about the beehive. A new king will come to take my place, Dorian says behind him. Go ahead, it is your purpose. He holds out the glass and Zachary takes the opportunity to remove it from his hand, placing it on the desk out of harm's way. Zachary had secretly wanted another story time with Dorian, but this is not what he'd had in mind. He stands and watches and listens through the decapitation of the owl and the disintegrating crown, and despite the peculiarities of the telling and the state of the storyteller, it feels real, realer now than when he read the same words on the page, like it all actually happened once upon a time. Then she woke, still in the chair by the fire in her library. Dorian punctuates the sentence by collapsing into his own chair by the fire. His head lolls against the back of the armchair and his eyes close and stay closed. Zachary moves to check on him, but as soon as he reaches the chair, Dorian leans forward and continues as though the story had not paused at all. On the shelf where the sword had been, there was a white and brown owl perched on the empty case. Dorian points to a bookshelf behind Zachary and Zachary turns, expecting to see the owl, and he does. Amongst the books there is a small painting of an owl with a golden crown hovering above its head. The owl remained with her for the rest of her days, Dorian whispers into Zachary's ear before he slumps back into the chair. Even this intoxicated, he's a very good storyteller. Who is the Owl King, really? Zachary asks after the post-story silence. Shh, 
Dorian replies, lifting a hand to Zachary's mouth to shush him. We can't know that yet. When we know it will mean we're at the end of the story. His fingers hang on Zachary's lips for a moment before his hand falls, a moment that tastes of scotch and sweat and turning pages. Dorian's head rests on the tall back of the armchair and late night drunken story time is over. Zachary takes his cue to leave, pausing at the desk to pick up the almost empty glass of scotch. He drinks what remains, partly so Dorian won't finish it himself if he wakes since he's probably had enough, but mostly because Zachary wants to taste what Dorian has been tasting. Smooth and smoky and a little bit melancholy. I love that scene. I know. Also, I think I said that story was in Sweet Sorrows, but it's clearly Fortunes and Fables. I love the chaotic energy yeah. of Dorian. Yeah, me too. <laughs> um, so I have a scene from a bit later, which is when they're sort of edging more towards admitting their feelings to one another, even though they're both still quite confused about how they feel. And the scene also just ends in such a great way. So they're drinking a glass of wine. Where did you get this? Dorian asks after he takes a sip from the bottle. In the wine cellar. It's at the far end of the ballroom, past where the Starless Sea used to be. Dorian looks at him with that thousands questions expression in his eyes, but instead of asking any of them, he takes another swig of wine and hands the bottle back to Zachary. It must have been something extraordinary back in its time, he says. Why do you think people came here, Zachary says, taking another myth-tinged sip before handing the bottle to Dorian, unable to tell if the rush in his head and his pulse is from the wine or the way Dorian's fingers move over his. I think people came here for the same reason we came here, Dorian says, in search of something, even if we didn't know what it was, something more, something to wonder at, some place to belong. We're here to wander through other people's stories, searching for our own. To seeking, Dorian says, tilting the bottle towards Zachary. To finding, Zachary responds, repeating the gesture once Dorian hands him the bottle. I do like that you've read my book, Dorian says. Thank you again for helping me get it back. You're welcome. Strange, isn't it, to love a book? when the words on the pages become so precious that they feel like part of your own history because they are. It's nice to finally have someone read stories I know so intimately. Which was your favourite? Zachary considers the question while also considering the particular use of the word intimately. He thinks over the stories, snippets of images coming back to him as he lets himself consider them simply as stories instead of trying to break them apart searching for their secrets. He looks at the bottle in his hands, the keys and the lantern, thinking of seers and taverns and shared bottles and snow-covered inns. I don't know. I liked the one with the swords. So many of them were kind of sad. I think the innkeeper and the moon were my favourite, but I wanted... Zachary stops, not certain what he wanted from it. More, maybe. He hands the bottle back to Dorian. You wanted a happier ending? No, not necessarily happier. I wanted more story. I wanted to know what happened afterward. I wanted the moon to figure out a way to come back even if she couldn't stay. All those stories are like that. They feel like pieces of bigger stories. Like there's more that happens beyond the pages. Dorian nods, thoughtfully. Is that a wardrobe? He asks, 
gesturing at the piece of furniture on the other side of the room. Yes, Zachary says, distracted into stating the obvious. Have you checked it? For what? Zachary asks, but realises as Dorian's disbelieving eyebrow rises. Oh, oh no, I haven't. It is, he thinks, the only proper wardrobe he has ever had, and after the considerable amount of time he has spent sitting in closets, literally and figuratively, he cannot believe he has not yet checked this one for a door to Narnia. Dorian hands the bottle of wine to Zachary and walks over to the wardrobe. I have never been particularly fond of Narnia myself, Dorian says as he runs his fingers over the carved wooden doors. Too much direct allegory for my tastes, though it does have a certain romance to it, the snow, the gentlemanly satyr. He opens the doors and smiles, though Zachary cannot tell what it is he's smiling at. He reaches out an arm and parts the hanging rows of linen and cashmere, slowly, carefully, drawing the motion out rather than reaching immediately to touch the back of the wardrobe, taking his time. He doesn't even need words to tell a story, a voice somewhere in Zachary's head observes, and he suddenly desperately wishes that he was currently occupying the sweater that Dorian has his hand on, and he's so distracted by this thought that it takes him a moment to realise that Dorian has stepped into the wardrobe and vanished. <laughs> oh, I just didn't... I just enjoy it. That's probably what I'm going to say after, like, every quote. Yeah. But I just love it. I love... Zorian's very, like... I just love his dramatics. I was going to say he's very theatrical. <laughs> he loves the spectacle. <laughs> he, he likes to... I like that he likes to honour the stories that he's telling. Yeah, exactly. You know? So, I have one final quote. And, again, because this is the spoiler episode, I'm going to read their final moments that we see in the Yay! novel. Recap, Zachary dies <laughs> because Dorian accidentally stabs him in the chest with a sword. That bit, uh, by the way. Yeah. Like, for context, for people that have or haven't read it. Mm-hmm. Like, when, so Dorian's like fighting phantoms. Mm-hmm. And so many of them have been Zachary. Mm-hmm. And he has to kill him. He has to kill him so many times. Mm-hmm. And then he actually kills him because he doesn't know it's him. And it, the way that that cliffhanger bit happens. Yeah. I, I'm, I've not recovered. <laughs> yeah, it's so clever because she wrote it from Zachary's perspective. So it's like Zachary realising that he's been stabbed mm-hmm. like with a massive sword by Dorian. It's not like Dorian being like, oh my god, look what I've just done. Yeah. It's Zachary being like, what just happened? Oh, it's so good. It's so good as well because Zachary's so happy to see him. Yeah. He's so like, ah, and then he goes to like hug him and then he's yeah. like, wait, why am I he, bleeding? He's like, oh, I've never had, I've never met someone who's taken my breath away before. And then he's like, no, literally I cannot breathe. Oh, so good. <gasps> anyway, um, back to a happier moment. <laughs> he comes back. It's he comes back. Dorian brings him back to life by giving him fate's heart. Because that is the kind of book that this is. I cried so much when I realised what was going to happen. Yeah. Oh. Okay. <clears throat> so this, like, chapter, if you can call it a chapter, is just a page. Zachary Ezra Rollins wakes, gasping, his new heart hammering in his chest. The last thing he remembers is honey. So much honey filling his lungs and pulling him down to the bottom of the starless sea. But he is not at the bottom of the starless sea. He's alive. He's here. Wherever here is. Here seems to be moving. The surface he is on is hard, but everything around him is oscillating. 
There are pieces of paper and bits of ribbon and something sticky that isn't honey beneath his fingers. The light is dim, but there are candles, maybe. He doesn't know where he is. He tries to stand and instead he falls, but someone catches him. Zachary and Dorian stare at each other in bewildered disbelief. Neither of them has the words for this moment in this story, not in any language. Zachary starts to laugh and Dorian leans in and takes the laugh from his lips with his own and there is nothing left between them now. No distance, no words, not even fate or time to complicate matters. This is where we leave them, in a long-awaited kiss upon the starless sea, tangled in salvation and desire and obsolete cartography. But this is not where their story ends. Their story is only just beginning. And no story ever truly ends as long as it is told. Oh, <laughs> oh man. <laughs> <laughs> I just get, like, I don't know, I don't cry at books. It's just the lang. it's the language and it's funny because she doesn't use any, like, fancy words it's just magical it's, yeah it's magical it feels so ancient yeah <laughs> yeah oh so yeah that's my my two favorite characters i'm going to talk more about zachary soon yes <laughs> but yeah for dorian just love how he's quite mysterious especially when we first meet him but yeah he's dramatic loves the spectacle such a good storyteller and he he saves zachary so yeah. we love him amazing <laughs> Okay, so who have you picked as your favourite character? So I kind of did the same as you, where like I had a most relatable character and then I've chosen my other favourite. Yeah. So my favourite, it was, it was so hard, because like, I wanted to go with a character that I enjoyed reading, mm-hmm. rather than just the one that I like the most. Mm-hmm. I have to say that a runner-up for this category would have to be Zachary's mum. Yes, I love her. Because like she's a fortune teller and she calls everyone honey child, and I she has a big dog. A- point about that later but yes um (laughs) so she's just a great ingredient to any scene every scene that she's in is good Mm -hmm. and one that i loved quite unexpectedly was the keeper Mm -hmm. because when you find out that he's literally time (laughs) and he's always waiting for fate to come back to him and then when you see him break down when he loses her oh it's so good (laughs) um honorable mention for the kitchen yes because the way the kitchen speaks is equal parts adorable and disconcerting. Yes. But my favourite character, who wasn't the one I related to, was Mirabelle. Yeah. Who is also fate. Because she's exactly what fate should be. <laughs> like, she's charming, she's beautiful, she's fearless. And we see all that in our first scenes with Zachary, when she shows up with, like, her pink hair and her Starbucks and she wants to rescue people. Mm-hmm. But she's also manipulative and she's ruthless and she's yeah. determined as we see when she tries to kill Dorian, and then, of course, when she essentially sacrifices Zachary to the story. Mm -hmm. So I was just always so engaged when I was reading her parts, and I'm going to read three of them, because why not? Yes, go for it. Also, I think that probably her and Zachary's relationship is my favourite one. Yeah, it's a really good one. Um, Like, his relationship to fate is just such a good idea. They have their little nicknames for each other as well. yeah. So I'm not going to read the Starbucks scene because you read that in the last mm-hmm. episode, mm-hmm. but it is a very good one. I recommend people go back and listen to the episode. I will read this one. So this is when we first meet Mirabelle, and she's just very cool. <laughs> Zachary walks until the hall opens into a garden with a soaring ceiling like marble near the elevator, casting a sunlight glow over the books abandoned on benches and fountains and piled near statues. 
He passes a statue of a fox and another that looks like a precarious stack of snowballs. In the centre of the room is a partially enclosed space that reminds him of a tea house. Inside are benches and a life-size statue of a woman seated in a stone chair. Her gown falls around the chair in realistically carved rippling cloth and everywhere, in her lap on her arms, tucked into the creases of her gown and the curls in her hair, there are bees. The bees are carved from a different colour of stone than their mistress, a warmer hue, and appear to be individual pieces. Zachary picks one up and then replaces it. The woman looks down, her hands in her lap with the palms facing up, as though she should be reading a book. By the statue's feet, surrounded by bees and resting like an offering, is a glass half-filled with dark liquid. I knew I was going to miss it, someone says behind him. Zachary turns. If he hadn't recognised her voice, he would not have guessed that this could be the same woman from the party. Her hair without the dark wig is thick and wavy and dyed in various shades of pink, beginning in pomegranate at the roots and fading to ballet slipper at her shoulders. There are traces of gold glitter around her dark eyes. She's older than he had thought. He'd guessed a few years older than him, but it might be more. She wears jeans and tall black boots with long laces and a cream-coloured sweater that looks as though it spent as little time as possible in the transition from sheep to clothing, and yet the whole ensemble has an air of effortless elegance to it. Several chains draped around her neck hold a number of keys, and a locket like Zachary's compass, and something that looks like a bird skull cast in silver. She somehow, even without the tail, still seems like Max, King of the Wild Things. <laughs> Miss what? Zachary asks. Every year around this time, someone leaves her a glass of wine, the pink-haired lady answers, pointing at the glass by the statue's feet. I've never seen who does it, and not for lack of trying. Another year, a mystery. You're Mirabel. My reputation precedes me, Mirabel says. I've always wanted to say that. We never had proper introductions, did we? You're Zachary Ezra Rollins, and I am going to call you Ezra, because I like it. If you call me Ezra, I'm going to call you Max. Deal, she agrees with that movie star smile. I retrieved your stuff from the hotel, Ezra. Left it in the office when I came to find you, so there's probably a cat sitting on it now, keeping it safe. Also, I checked you out of the aforementioned hotel, and I owe you a dance since we were interrupted. How are you and what's-his-name settling in? Dorian? He told you his name is Dorian. How Oscar Wilde indulgent of him. I thought he was bad enough with his drama eyebrows and his sulking. He said I should call him Mr Smith. He must like you better. Well, whatever his name is, he's not here, Zachary says. Those people have him. Mirabelle's smile vanishes. The instant concern doubles the worry that Zachary has been trying to force to the back of his mind. Who has him? She asks, though Zachary can tell she already knows. The people with the paint and the robes, the collector's club, whoever they are. These people, he adds, pulling the silver sword from underneath his sweater, cursing when it gets tangled and realising he's more upset than he'd care to admit. Mirabelle says nothing, but she frowns and looks past Zachary at the statue of the woman with her bees and the lack of book. Is he already dead? Zachary asks, though he doesn't want to hear the answer. If he's not, it's for one reason, Mirabelle says, her attention on the statue. Which is? They're using him as bait. Mirabelle walks over to the statue and picks up the glass of mystery wine. She contemplates it for a moment, then lifts it to her lips and downs the whole thing. She puts the empty glass back and turns to Zachary. Shall we go and rescue him, Ezra? (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, so good. I thought you were going to, when you said it's like her first scene, you were going to read the party scene. Ah, uh, but... no. The party scene is good, but I like this one because I like the bit where she says, my reputation precedes me. I've always wanted to say yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> and where are my other favourite Mirabelle and Zachary scenes? Da, 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 da. This one is where Zachary's exploring all the chambers of the underground world and he finds Mirabelle. And I like the exchange here, especially when you know later that she's fate and like immortal because you can see how well constructed all of her little mannerisms mm. are. Oh, this might lead in something I want to talk about later. Cool. So this will be interesting. This is quite a long this is a long passage, mm-hmm. but it's an indulgent episode, so <laughs> settle in guys. This has got a good bit about the Starless Sea too. As he walks across the ballroom, Zachary feels more acutely that he's missed something. He's arrived too late. The party is over. If he had opened that painted door so long ago, would he have already been too late then? Probably. There is a door on the far wall, past the fireplaces and beyond a stretch of dark open archways. Zachary opens the door and finds someone else in the midst of the post-party emptiness. Mirabelle is curled up amongst racks filled with bottles, up in a window-like nook on a wall with no window, in a wine cellar with more than enough wine for all the parties that are not occurring in the ballroom. She wears a long-sleeved black dress that could probably be described as slinky if it wasn't so voluminous. It obscures her legs and the stacks of wine below her and part of the floor. She has a glass of sparkling wine in one hand and her nose is buried in a book, and as Zachary gets closer he can read the cover, A Wrinkle in Time. I was annoyed about not remembering the Tesseract technicalities, Mirabelle says, without looking up or clarifying any specifics regarding space or time. You may be interested in knowing that the damage due to an electrical fire in the basement of a private club in Manhattan was extensive but controlled and did not spread to neighbouring buildings. They may even not have to tear it down. She rests her book on a nearby wine bottle, open to keep her page marked, and looks down at him. The building was, reportedly, unoccupied at the time, she continues. I'd like to know where Allegra is before I take you back up, if that's all right with you. Zachary thinks it likely doesn't matter whether or not it's all right with him, and again he finds himself in no great hurry to return to the surface. Who's the Queen of the Bees? he asks. Mirabelle looks at him quizzically enough for him to be certain that she didn't write the note, but then she shrugs her shoulders and points behind him. Zachary turns. There are long wooden tables with benches tucked among the racks of wine and other window-like nooks in the stone walls, the largest of which holds the massive painting that Mirabelle is pointing at. It is a portrait of a woman in a low-cut, wine-red gown, holding a pomegranate in one hand and a sword in the other. The background is a textured darkness, with the light coming from the figure herself. It reminds Zachary of a Rembrandt painting, the way she glows within the shadows. The woman's face is entirely obscured by a swarm of bees. A few of the bees have wandered downward to investigate the pomegranate. Who is she? Zachary asks. Your guess is as good as mine, Mirabelle says. It has rather heavy Persephone overtones. Queen of the Underworld, Zachary says, staring at the painting, trying to figure out how to give it keys and failing. He wishes the pomegranate had a keyhole painted into it. That would be whimsical and appropriate. You're well read, Ezra, Mirabelle remarks, sliding from her perch. I'm well miffed, Zachary corrects. When I was a kid, I thought Hecate and Isis and all the Orishas were friends of my mum's, like actual people. I suppose in a way they are. Whatever. Mirabelle lifts an open bottle of champagne from an ice bucket on one of the tables. She holds it up and offers it to Zachary. 
I'm more of a cocktail guy, he says, though he is also of the opinion that sparkling wine is an anytime beverage and appreciates Mirabelle's style. What's your poison, she asks as she refills the glass. I owe you a drink and a dance and other things, I'm sure. Sidecar, no sugar, Zachary replies, distracted by the deck of cards sitting next to the champagne. Mirabelle slinks over to the wall on the other side of the painting, her gown following behind. She taps a part of the wall that opens, revealing a hidden dumbwaiter. Zachary returns his attention to the cards. Are these yours? he asks. I shuffle them compulsively more than I read them, she says. I'm surprised there aren't more down here. They're basically stories and pieces that can be rearranged. Zachary flips a card, expecting a familiar tarot archetype, but the image on the card is a strange one. A black and white anatomical sketch, surrounded by a swirl of watercolour blood. The lung. The title is appropriate for the illustration. A single lung, not a pair. The watercolour blood looks like it's moving, swirling into the lung and out again. Zachary puts the card back on top of the pile. A chime sounds from the door on the wall, startling him. Does your mother read cards? Mirabelle asks as she hands him a chilled coupe glass, its rim distinctly unsugared. Sometimes, Zachary says. People tend to expect it, so she'll lay out some cards when she reads, but she mostly holds objects and gets impressions from them. It's called psychometry. She measures souls. I guess so, if you're into direct translations. Zachary takes a sip of his sidecar. It's quite possibly the most perfect sidecar that he's ever tasted, and he wonders how perfection can be so disconcerting. The kitchen is an excellent mixologist, Mirabelle says, in reply to his litany of facial expressions. As I was saying, we should lay low, pun not entirely intended. Don't tell me you can't find anything to occupy yourself with, or anyone for that matter. Mirabelle continues before Zachary can protest the statement. To think if you'd picked up a different library book, you wouldn't be here right now. I'm sorry you lost it. Oh, Zachary says, I had it the whole time. Dorian had put it in my coat. He takes sweet sorrows from his bag and hands it to Mirabelle. Do you know where it came from? It could be one of the books from the archive, she says, flipping through the pages. I'm not certain. Only acolytes are allowed in the archive. Rhyme would know more, but she probably won't tell you. She takes her vows seriously. Who wrote it? Zachary asks. Why am I in it? If it was from the archive, it was written down here. I've heard that the records kept in the archive aren't exactly chronological. Someone must have removed it and brought it topside. That might be why Allegra was looking for it. She likes keeping things locked up. Is that what she's doing, trying to keep it locked up? She thinks locking it away will keep it safe. Safe from what? Zachary asks. Mirabelle shrugs. People? Progress? Time? I don't know. She might have succeeded if it wasn't for me. There were only real doors once upon a time, and she'd closed so many before I figured out that I could paint new ones, and now she tries to close those too. Close it away and keep it from harm. She talks a lot about eggs and keeping them from breaking. If an egg breaks, it becomes more than what it was, Mirabelle says, after considering the matter. And what is an egg, if not something waiting to be broken? I think the egg was a metaphor. Can't make an omelette without breaking a few metaphors, Mirabelle says. She closes Sweet Sorrows and hands it back to Zachary. If it does belong in the archive, I don't think Rhyme would mind if he kept it, as long as it stays down here. As she turns to refill her wine glass, Zachary notices an addition to the numerous chains round her neck. A layered series of chains with a gold sword, much like the one he has around his own neck, accompanied by a key and a bee. 
Is that necklace gold? Zachary asks, pointing. Mirabel looks at him curiously and then glances down at the key. I think so. It's gold-plated, at least. Did you wear it to the party last year? I did. You reminded me with your origin story in the elevator. I'm glad it was useful. Useful jewellery is the best kind of jewellery. Can I borrow the key? You don't have enough jewellery already, Mirabel says, looking at his compass and his keys and Dorian's sword hanging like a talisman. Look who's talking. Mirabel narrows her eyes and sips her wine, but then she reaches behind her neck to undo the clasp. She untangles the chain with the key from the rest of her neckwear and hands it down to him. Don't melt it down, she says, letting it drop into his open palm. Of course not. I'll bring it back. Zachary puts the necklace in his bag. What are you up to, Ezra? Mirabel asks, and he almost tells her, but something stops him. I'm not sure yet, he says. I'll let you know if I find out. Please do, Mirabel says with a curious smile. Zachary picks up her glass of wine from the table and takes a sip of it. It tastes like winter sun and melting snow, bubbles bright and sharp and bursting. There is a story here for each bubble in each bottle, in every glass and every sip, and when the wine is gone the stories will remain. Zachary isn't certain if the voice is the normal voice in his head or another voice entirely, if maybe Mirabel's wine is made of stories like her weird tin filled with not mints. He isn't certain about anything. He isn't even certain that he minds not being certain about anything. He downs the rest of his sidecar to wash the story voices away, and when it settles, there is a question on his tongue instead. Max, where's the sea? The what? The sea! The starless sea, the body of water on which this place is a harbour. Oh, Mirabel says, frowning into her fizzing glass. Zachary waits for her to tell him that the starless sea is a bedtime story for children, or that the starless sea is a state of mind, or that there is no starless sea at all, and there never was. But she doesn't. She stands and says, this way. She plucks the champagne bottle from the table and walks out of the wine cellar and into the ballroom. Zachary follows, leaving his empty glass next to a deck of cards that would tell him the whole story if he laid them out in the proper order. Mirabel leads him through the shadowed arches near the door to the wine cellar. They're so dark, Zachary had not noticed the stairs beyond them. He cannot see more than an arm's length in front of him as they descend. He stays two stairs behind Mirabel in order not to step on the hem of her gown, and even in that two-stair distance, she practically vanishes into the shadows. How far down is it? He starts to ask, but the darkness takes the word how and volleys it back to him. How, 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 how. The darkness, he understands now, is very, very large. The stairs terminate at a long, low wall carved into the rock, short columns rising from the raw stone floor. Zachary glances back up the stairs where six archways of light stare out into the dark. So you wish to see the sea, Mirabel sings songs, looking out over the wall into the darkness, and Zachary cannot tell if she's talking to him or to herself or to the darkness that he assumes is a cave. The cave answers, see, 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 see. Where is it? Zachary asks. Mirabel steps closer to the stone wall and looks over. Zachary stands next to her and looks down. The light from the ballroom catches an expanse of raw stone before the rock tapers off into nothingness and shadow. Zachary can just make out his silhouette in the stone alongside Mirabelle's, but the light doesn't reach anything resembling water or waves. How far down is it? In response to this question, Mirabelle takes the champagne bottle and tosses it into the darkness. Zachary waits for it to crash against the rock or splash into the sea. He doesn't believe is there, but it does neither. He keeps waiting and waiting. Mirabel sips her wine. 
After a time that would be more appropriately measured in minutes than seconds, there is the softest sound, far, far below, so far that Zachary cannot tell if the sound is breaking glass or not. The echo picks it up half-heartedly and carries it part way back, as though the effort is too great to bring such a small sound so far. The starless sea, Mirabelle says, gesturing with her glass, both at the abyss below and the dark above, devoid of stars. Zachary stares out into the nothingness, not knowing what to say. There used to be beaches, Mirabelle tells him. People would dance in the surf during parties. What happened? It receded. Is that why people left, or did it recede because people left? Neither. Both. You could try to point out a single moment that started the exodus, but I think it was just time. The old doors were crumbling long before Allegra and company started tearing them down and displaying doorknobs like hunting trophies. Places change. People change. She takes another sip of her wine and Zachary wonders if she's thinking of someone in particular, but he doesn't ask. It's not what it was, Mirabelle continues. Please don't feel bad about missing the Haiti. The Haiti was over and the tide was out long before I was born. But the book, Zachary begins not quite knowing what he's going to say, and then Mirabelle cuts him off. A book is an interpretation, she says. You want a place to be like it was in the book, but it's not a place in a book, it's just words. The place in your imagination is where you want to go, and that place is imaginary. This is real. She places her hands on the wall in front of them. The stone is cracked near her fingers, a fissure running down the side and disappearing into a column. You could write endless pages, but the words will never be the place. Besides, that's what it was, not what it is. It could be that again, couldn't it? Zachary asks. If we fixed the doors, people would come. I appreciate that we, Ezra, Mirabelle says, but I've been doing this for years. People come, but they don't stay. The only one who ever stayed is Rhyme. The keeper said all of the old residents left or died. Or disappeared. Disappeared, Zachary repeats, and the cavern around them echoes his echo, breaking the words into fragments and picking its favourite. Appear, appear, appear. Do me a favour, Ezra, Mirabelle says. Don't wander too far down. She turns and kisses him on the cheek and walks up the stairs. <laughs> I know that was really long. Yeah. But I, I love that whole scene. Yeah. For like, again, like it starts so whimsical. Mm-hmm. And she's so flippant. And then she just gets so much sadder and more serious as it goes on yeah yeah i i was going to mention a moment in that scene so will i just talk about it now because yeah. we're on the topic so yeah the as you guys can tell the novel heroes like all kinds of storytelling not just like the written word so i love the detail with the tarot cards mm-hmm. um where she yeah, where she says they're basically stories and pieces that can be rearranged. Mm. And then obviously that moment, Zachary follows, leaving his empty glass next to a deck of cards that would tell him the whole story if he laid them out in the proper order. Oh! <sighs> so good. Like, the the journey that he's going on, which he does not understand at this point in the book, was just there in front of him. Yeah. Like, this book is full of missed chances, like, missed opportunities. Yes. And this is another one. And it's so good. I know, that, that, like, line is such a gut punch. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I literally, I remember reading it and going... (gasps) (laughs) (laughs) I know, because you're like... It's kind of like, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, the fact that he's like, 
pl- it's like playing a game mm-hmm. and the idea that you've like gone past the answer yeah and it's so devastating to think that you've gone past the answer and yeah. you want to like scream at the book and be like no look at the thing i know because he even brings it up he asked her about the cards yeah so it's not like he he totally missed it yeah he just didn't ask enough questions oh it's just oh. but also that's why I, I wanted to read that scene out because Mirabel's whole vibe is this very spontaneous mm-hmm. and like whimsical character but she's so calculating yeah she's because, deceptive yeah because when, she's fake yeah. and so yeah. she has to she has an agenda for things yeah and so like the fact that she didn't tell him about the cards mm-hmm. that she just sort of like passes it off is so yeah. telling when you read the end of the story yeah so good <laughs> so yeah I just think she's really well constructed and then yeah. there I wanted to read out the last scene between Zachary and Mirabelle at the very end of the book because I think it's like the perfect ending mm-hmm. but it is also quite long but then most of my other quotes aren't so it's I'll up go. to yourself just I'll go for it so this is Zachary's last dance with fate <laughs> at the end of the story which is both the end of like at the end of the novel but the story in the novel this is the end of the story (laughs) the son of the fortune teller is guided by giant bees down a staircase within a dollhouse to where a basement would be though rather than a basement there is now an expansive ballroom made of honeycomb shimmering and gold and beautiful sorry but can we just appreciate that (laughs) fucking sentence yeah it is ready, Mr. Rollins. There is not much time left, but here you go. Here is the place that you wanted, the dancing, talking place. The story sculptor is waiting for you inside. Tell her we said hello, please. Thank you. The buzzing quiet is drowned out by the music as Zachary descends to the ballroom. Some jazz standard he recognises but could not name. The room is crowded with dancing ghosts. Transparent figures in timeless formal wear and masks conjured from glitter and honey luminous and swirling over a polished wax floor patterned with hexagons. It is the idea of a party constructed by bees. It doesn't feel real, but it does feel familiar. The dancers part for Zachary as he walks, and then he can see her across the room, solid and substantial, and here. Mirabel looks exactly as she did the first time he saw her, dressed as the king of the wild things, though her hair is its proper pink beneath her crown, and her gown has been embellished. The draping white cloth is now embroidered with barely visible illustrations and white threads of forests and cities and caverns laced together with honeycomb and snowflakes. She looks like a fairy tale. When he reaches her, Mirabel offers her hand and Zachary accepts it. Here now, in a ballroom made of wax and gold, Zachary Ezra Rollins begins his last dance with fate. Is this all in my head? Zachary asks as they twirl amongst the golden crowd. Am I making all of this up? If you were, whatever answer I gave you would also be made up, wouldn't it? Mirabel answers. Zachary doesn't have a good response for that particular observation. You knew that would happen, he says. You made all of this happen. I did not. I gave you doors. You chose whether or not you opened them. I don't write the story. I only nudge it in different directions. Because you're the story sculptor. I'm just a girl looking for a key, Ezra. The music changes and she guides him into a turn. The incandescent ghosts around them spin. I don't remember all the times I died, Mirabel continues. I remember some with perfect clarity and other lifetimes fade out into the next. 
but I remember drowning in honey and for a moment, smothered in stories, I saw everything. I saw a thousand harbours and I saw the stars and I saw you and me here and now at the end of it all, but I didn't know how we'd get here. You asked for me, didn't you? I can't really be here since I'm not dead. But you're, shouldn't you be able to be wherever you want? Not really. I'm in a vessel. An immortal one this time, but still a vessel. Maybe I am whatever I was before again. Maybe I'm something new now. Maybe I'm just myself. I don't know. As soon as there's an unquestionable truth, there's no longer a myth. They dance in silence for a moment while Zachary thinks about truth and myth, and the other dancers circle them. Thank you for finding Simon, Mirabel says after a pause. You set him back on his path. I didn't. You did. He'd still be hiding in temples if you hadn't brought him back into the story. Now he's where he needs to be. It's sort of like being found. That was all unforeseen. They did so much planning to have me conceived out of time. No one ever stopped to think about what would happen to my parents after the fact. And then everything got complicated. You can't end a story when there are parts of it still running around in time. And then I'll just skip ahead a little bit. I don't know what happens next, Mirabelle answers. Truly, I don't, she adds in response to the look Zachary gives her. I spent a very long time trying to get to this point and it seemed such an impossible goal that I didn't give much thought to what waited beyond it. This is a nice touch, back to the beginning and all. I didn't think we'd get to finish our dance. Some dances are left unfinished. Zachary has a thousand questions still to ask, but instead he pulls Mirabelle closer and rests his head against her neck. He can hear her heartbeat thrumming, slow and steady, in time with the music. There is nothing now, save for this room, and this woman, and this story. Oh. There's so... I could go on, but I'll stop yeah. there. <laughs> I think, like, that moment because up until that moment he kind of hates her yeah it's very yeah yeah like you don't know if she's good or bad Mm -hmm. because you think she's tricked him Mm -hmm. into dying (laughs) (laughs) yeah Uh, but that moment where he like it's like so tender and it's like he understands why she had to do what she had to do yeah oh so good (laughs) (sighs) i was fully like from the bit where he dies all the way through that scene, I was just crying. Yeah, yeah, exactly the same. Exactly the same. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yeah, enough right. of my big long quotes. Are we moving on? We're moving on. Okay. Who's your most relatable character? Zachary. <laughs> I find it quite hard to explain why, though. Like, maybe you can offer an opinion because you're not me. But I just feel like we think the same way. Yeah, I feel like his particular brand of, like... <laughs> Like everyone overthinks. But I feel like <laughs> I feel like his brand of overthinking, like the way that he trails off of like something and ends up somewhere completely different. It's exactly how my brain works. I don't know what she's done. She's like literally taken like my soul and put it into, into this man. Yeah. yeah. It's so weird when I read it, I'm like, oh my god. I can see you like going and hiding in a cupboard when a book gets too much. <laughs> She like that. Yeah. So yeah, ba- like the way Zachary looks at the world is how I look at the world, both in good ways and bad. Some of the ways are like more profound. Some just weird quirks that mm. I have. Like even when our friend Steph read this, she was literally like, "Yeah, 
it's you. <laughs> so yeah, because of that, I couldn't pick just one quote to read. So what I'm going to do is just give you a bunch of little ones, just the kind of one-liners yeah. that I'm like, mm-hmm, yeah. Nice. And then I have one like longer one at Sounds the end. Good. Um, so this first one is from when Maribel asks him to dance at that party where they meet. Ah. Would you like to dance, she asks. Say something suave, a voice in Zachary's head commands. Sure, is what his mouth comes up with, and the voice inside his head throws up its arms in disappointment. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) This is a very lovely quote about religion, or lack of religion. Spiritual but not religious, Zachary clarifies. He doesn't say what he is thinking, which is that his church is held breath story listening and late night concert ear ringing rapture and perfect boss fight button pressing. That his religion is buried in the silence of freshly fallen snow and a carefully crafted cocktail in between the pages of a book somewhere after the beginning but before the ending. Oh, that's such a good quote. Yeah. That is very you. I know. <laughs> this one is about anxiety. <laughs> Um, love that he's not opposed to making himself comfortable he's already comfortable the kind of comfortable that involves occasionally lying on the floor in the bathroom tile and reminding oneself to breathe I sent that quote to someone (laughs) and I heard it being like this is a mood yeah there's also one that I've like totally forgotten to tap and it's um it's perfectly normal behaviour to read a book four times in one day or something yeah. like that. I'm like, mm-hmm. Okay, so finally I thought I'd read one that's like a bit more like dramatic and emotional. Obviously, there's situations in this passage that do not relate to my life, but the just kind of sentiment behind it, I think, is quite me. The son of the fortune teller sits in a chair surrounded by keys in the middle of a starlit forest talking to a woman made of snow and ice. At first he does not know what to say. He does not think of himself as a storyteller. He never has. He thinks of all the tales he grew up feasting on, myths and fairy tales and cartoons. He remembers sweet sorrows in its test for keepers, the storytelling surrounded by keys and how they could tell any story but their own. But he does not have a story. He has nothing practised, nothing prepared. But the request is so open-ended tell me a story. The request comes with no specifications or requirements. So Zachary begins to speak, haltingly at first but gradually becoming more comfortable, as though he is talking to an old friend in a dimly lit bar over well-crafted cocktails instead of sitting in a snow-covered fairy tale wood addressing a silent effigy. He starts with an 11-year-old boy finding a painted door in an alleyway. He describes the door in great detail, into its painted keyhole. He tells her how the boy did not open it, how afterward he wished that he had, and how at odd moments over the following years he would think about it, how the door haunted him and how it haunts him, still. He tells her about moving from place to place to place and never feeling like he ever belonged in any of them, how wherever he was he would almost always rather be someplace else, preferably somewhere fictional. He tells her how he worries that none of it means anything, that none of it is important, 
that who he is or who he thinks he is is just a collection of references to other people's art and he's so focused on story and meaning and structure that he wants his worlds to have all of it neatly laid out and it never ever does and he fears it never will. He tells her things he has never told anyone. About the man who broke his heart in such a long, drawn-out process that he couldn't discern heart from love, and how whenever he tries to sort out how he feels now, long after the end of it, the feeling is just a void. He tells her how the university library became a touchstone for him after that. How when he felt himself falling, he would go and find a new book and fall into it instead, and be someone somewhere else for a while. He describes the library down to its unreliable light bulbs and finding sweet sorrows and how that moment unexpectedly changed all the moments that followed. He reads sweet sorrows to her, relying on memory when the starlight is not enough to illuminate the words. He tells her Dorian's fairy tales about castles and swords and owls, about lost hearts and lost keys in the moon. He tells her how he always felt like he was searching for something, always thinking about that unopened door and how disappointed he felt once he went through another painted door and that feeling still didn't go away, but how for just a moment in a gilded ballroom, preserved in time, it did. He found what he had been seeking, a person, not a place, a particular person in this particular place, and then the moment and the place and the person were gone. And I'll stop there. <gasps> oh, I didn't cry. Yay. Well done, me. <laughs> Oh man, it's the bit where he says like he's worried that it doesn't mean anything, yeah, and that it never will. Yeah, that's the bit that. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so that that's that. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag relatable content. <laughs> no, it's just it's just a very beautiful passage, and like like I said, I've obviously not my life hasn't been as dramatic as that, but like the kind of sentiment, the kind of like soul behind it. I don't think like, that we would have a podcast about stories called Infatuated <laughs> if we weren't like that. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so who have you picked for your most relatable character? I kind of had to because I couldn't pick between Eleanor and Dorian. I wondered if you were going to pick Eleanor. Eleanor was who I was slightly leaning towards, but I see Dorian as well. So, like, Dorian, I feel like, is more obviously, like, personality-wise, like mm, me. Mm-hmm. Like, he's a storyteller I'm literally paid to do that like he loves Oscar Wilde he (laughs) loves like drama and flamboyance um he's got like a complicated relationship with like religion and stuff Mm -hmm. like that Mm -hmm. he falls in love at first sight blah blah (laughs) blah so I have three very short moments where I've been like this this is boy gets me Mm -hmm. um also Zachary and Dorian are Pisces and Taurus which just (laughs) makes me happy for us (laughs) yeah that's a vibe but let me let me read this little bit so this is when they're wandering through the library after they've recovered from being poisoned Mm. Dorian stands in front of the painting staring at it he wears a long felted wool coat midnight blue and collarless and perfectly tailored to fit him with polished buttons that might be wood or bone shaped like stars so he matches the painting The coat has coordinating trousers, but he's barefoot. He turns as the bookshelf closes behind Zachary. You're here, Dorian says, and it sounds more like an observation about the place in general than Zachary appearing out of bookshelf in particular. Yes, I am. I thought I'd dreamed you. Zachary has no idea how to respond to that comment and is relieved when Dorian turns his attention back to the painting. 
He probably thinks that drunken story time was also a dream, and maybe that's for the best. Zachary walks over and stands next to Dorian, and side by side they observe the man in his cage. I feel like I've seen this before, Dorian remarks. It reminds me of the key collector's garden from your book, Zachary says, and Dorian turns to him, surprised. I read it, I'm sorry. The apology is automatic, though he's not actually sorry. Don't be, Dorian says. He turns back to the painting. How are you feeling? Zachary asks. Like I'm losing my mind, but in a slow, achingly beautiful sort of way. Yeah, I get that. So better then. Dorian smiles and Zachary wonders how you can miss someone's smile when you've only seen it once. Yes, better. Thank you. You're not wearing shoes. I hate shoes. Hate is a strong emotion for footwear, Zachary observes. Most of my emotions are strong, Dorian responds. And again, Zachary doesn't know how to reply, and Dorian saves him from having to. <laughs> <laughs> I relate to that. Yeah, I love that. I almost read out that scene for, like, when I was going to talk about, you know, when I talked about yeah. their relationship. There's just, there's a lot of good lines in that bit. It's also quite a funny scene, because they realise that, like, they might not be speaking the same language. Yeah, which is, like, pretty <laughs> It's good just quite metaphor. funny. <laughs> but I also love this bit. It's later in the same scene, but it's just this little conversation, Can I ask you a question, Zachary says when he catches up with him. Of course. Why did you help me back in New York? It's something Zachary has not been able to figure out, thinking that there must be more to it than simply getting his own book back. Because I wanted to, Doreen says. I've spent a great deal of my life doing what other people wanted for me, and not what I wanted myself, and I'm trying to change. Impulse decisions, no shoes... It's refreshing in a terrifying sort of way. (laughs) (laughs) I just really related to that. Yeah. Um, And also, you already read it out, but the the strange isn't it when someone reads a book that you... Yeah. That whole bit. Yeah. It's a vibe. But I also, yeah, I really related to Eleanor in this, who, like, can we just appreciate the magicalness of a little girl opens a door in the forest floor and falls through into a book-filled wonderland and decides to become a rabbit. <laughs> like, I see you, Lewis Carroll. <laughs> but the wee one very short passage that I think I sent to you and it made me cry is when Eleanor is trying to take care of her baby, who, of course, is Mirabelle. Mm-hmm. And she says this. The kitchen suggests she read to the baby and Eleanor feels stupid for not trying that before. She misses sweet sorrows and regrets giving it away. She feels sorry for pulling pages out, all the bits she didn't like when she first read it. She wonders if she would like those parts better now if she could read them again, but they are lost, folded into stars and thrown into dark corners like her old nightmares. She tries to remember why it was she did not like them. There was a part about the stag in the snow that made her heart hurt and the bit about the rising sea, and someone lost an eye, but she does not recall who. She thinks now it is silly to be upset by the fates of characters who do not exist to the point of ripping out pages and hiding them away, but it made sense to her at the time. This place made more sense when she was a rabbit, sneaking through the darkness like she owned it, like the world was hers. She can't remember when that changed. Perhaps she herself is a page that was torn from a story and folded into a star and thrown in the shadows to be forgotten. Perhaps she should not steal books from hidden archives only to rip out their pages and give them away, but it is too late to change any of that now, and a beloved book is still beloved, even if it's stolen to begin with, and imperfect, and then lost. Mm. Yeah, I like that. I think that's my equivalent to your um, Zachary's storytelling. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, Eleanor. (laughs) 
things were simpler when she was a rabbit. Yeah. I love when um, her and Simon like get together and they like sleep together for the first time and he's like, I left the the bunny ears on. <laughs> sure is his bunny ears. I'm like, oh, so good. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that is such a, like, the whole ballad of Simon and Eleanor is such a good yeah. tale. Yeah. Okay. Are we doing our favourite short story? Yes. Now? Yeah. So like, as we said, there's lots of short stories in amongst, you know, the, ma- the main plot of, of Zachary. Um, so we've picked our favourites. Picked our favourites, which is very hard to do. It's really <laughs> difficult to do. Um, yeah, I genuinely love all of them. Um, probably, I do actually really like the ballads of Simon and Eleanor just as a whole mm. thing, but it's kind of, you can't really read one of those out because you need to have read the others yeah, for it to make bitty. sense. One I was going to do, I think you were going to do, so I've left that out. So my like sort of top three, which I'll just mention the mm. other two. So one is called The Star Merchant. Um, it's just about a guy who sells stars and it's just really cute. Um, and then one is called Invented Life, which is about this dollhouse um, that basically every time someone sort of goes to see the dollhouse, they'll like add a little element of it. And basically Zachary ends up in it at the end of the book. That chapter was so disconcerting. <laughs> yeah, I know. But the story I decided to go with was one that I just kept, it just kept coming back into my head. Mm. It's quite early on and it's one of those stories where you don't really get what's going on mm. um, until you've like read the book. Then you're like, ah, we found out who that character was. It's Simon. And it's also just filled with like the most beautiful prose like ever. <laughs> so <laughs> this isn't too long. It's only a couple of pages. So this one is in Sweet Sorrows. And it's titled Lost Cities of Honey and Bone. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> in the depths, there is a man lost in time. He has opened the wrong doors, chosen the wrong paths, wandered farther than he should have. He is looking for someone, something, someone. He does not remember who the someone is, does not have the ability, here in the depths where time is fragile, to grasp the thoughts and memories and hold on to them to sort through them to recall more than glimpses. Sometimes he stops and in the stopping, the memory grows clear enough for him to see her face or pieces of it. But the clarity motivates him to continue and then the pieces fall apart again and he walks on not knowing for whom or what it is he walks. He only knows he has not reached it yet, reached her yet. Who? He looks toward the sky that is hidden from him by rock and earth and stories. No one answers his question. There is a dripping he mistakes for water, but no other sound. Then the question is forgotten again. He walks down crumbling stairs and trips over tangled roots. He's long since passed by the last of the rooms with their doors and their locks, the places where the stories are content to remain on their shelves. He has entangled himself from vines blossoming with story-filled flowers. He has traversed piles of abandoned teacups with text baked into their crackled glaze. He has walked through puddles of ink and left footprints that formed stories in his wake that he did not turn around to read. Now he travels through tunnels with no light at their ends, feeling his way along unseen walls until he finds himself someplace, somewhere, sometime else. He passes over broken bridges and under crumbling towers. He walks over bones he mistakes for dust and nothingness he mistakes for bones. His once fine shoes are worn. He abandoned his coat some time ago. He does not remember the coat with its multitude of buttons, 
The court, if courts could remember such things, would remember him, but by the time they are reunited, the court will belong to someone else. On clear days, memories focus in his mind in scattered words and images. His name, the night sky, a room with red velvet drapery, a door, his father, books, hundreds and thousands of books, a single book in her hand, her eyes, her hair, the tips of her fingers. But most of the memories are stories, pieces of them, blind wanderers and star-crossed lovers, grand adventures and hidden treasures, mad kings and cryptic witches. The things he has seen and heard with his own eyes and ears mix with tales he has read or heard with his own eyes and ears. They are inseparable down here. There are not many clear days, clear nights. There is no way to tell the difference here in the depths. Night or day, fact or fiction, real or imagined. Sometimes he feels he has lost his own story, fallen out of its pages and landed here, in between, but he remains in his story. He cannot leave it, no matter how he tries. The man lost in time walks along the shore of the sea and does not look up to see the lack of stars. He wanders through empty cities of honey and bone, down streets that once rang with music and laughter. He lingers in abandoned temples, lighting candles for forgotten gods and running his fingers over the fossils of unaccepted offerings. He sleeps in beds that no one has dreamed upon in centuries, and his own sleep is deep, his dreams as unfathomable as his waking hours. At first the bees watched him, followed him while he walked and hovered while he slept. They thought he might be someone else. He is just a boy, a man, something in between. Now the bees ignore him. They go about their own business. They decided that one man out of his depth is no cause for alarm, but even the bees are wrong from time to time. Oh, that gives me a chill. I know. That ending. <laughs> oh, it's so good. But yeah, like, for anyone who's read the book, obviously there's so many, like, moments in this that you, you later are like, oh, that's what that meant. Like, like the coat, when mm-hmm. he's reunited with the coat, it's because Zachary's wearing it. Yeah. Like, it's just... Oh, I just love it. <laughs> I, I'm quite impressed with that one because I did not see the book taking the turn that it takes where Zachary ends up wandering through these depths mm-hmm. of of old harbours and cities. Yeah, it gets really dark. It gets really yeah. dark and it goes like further underground mm-hmm. in like metaphorically and physically. And I just didn't... like. I expected it to be that he would get to the harbour as he does at the start. It would be this really, like, magical... And it would all take place in the harbour, and I didn't expect, like, the floor to go out from under the harbour. So I think, like, that one is so disconcerting because it's so different to all the others, Mm -hmm. and then when you get to that bit... And it's so early. Mm -hmm. So you read it, and it's like, oh, that's unsettling. And then it kind of... The story... But the story is still up quite upbeat at that point, Mm -hmm. so you're kind of like, why was that story really creepy and none of the others are and then obviously you get to the end and you're like oh, oh. <laughs> that's why that line of like the bees are wrong from time to time just like yeah. it makes me feel sick i know like... also like my like one of my favorite quotes just in the whole book is the one about um the like ink footprints mm. yeah he's walked through puddles of ink and left footprints that formed stories in his wake that he did not turn around to read and I've written a very profound <laughs> note in the margin, which is, is that what life is? Leaving stories in your wake. 
Oh. Clearly, I was having a very existential moment when I was reading this one. So. I thought it might be like it's good foreshadowing because it's sort of like all of the like the whole harbour and everything's kind of built on people leaving stories for other people to find. Yeah. yeah. Um, but they don't. Well, that kind of is what he does. Like Zachary follows with him. The he follows the story, follows yeah. footprints, and finds him. So nice. Okay, so what one did you pick? My top three are the story sculptor, which mm-hmm. of course we later find out is Mirabel. Yes. The Inn at the Edge of the World. Yep. Which is my favourite. Yeah. Or the Key Collector. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to just check how long the Inn at the Edge of the World is. Yeah, it's a bit of a longer one. Because it's a longer one, but I'll see how many pages it is. Mm, I think <laughs> I'll do the Key Collector. Okay. But the Inn at the Edge of the World is the one that Emily was talking about where it's the, the moon... And the innkeeper mm-hmm. fall in love. Mm-hmm. And can you just read out the last line of it, please? Yes. <laughs> Let me find. <laughs> because it's also one of my favourites, and I just feel like we need that last line in this episode. Because she rose from her chair by the fire and took the innkeeper by the hand into her room and into her bed, and the wind howled around the inn, crying for love found and mourning for love lost, for no mortal can love the moon, not for long. Oh, it's so good. <sighs> it make like yeah, it's it's a really beautiful story and yeah. like the idea of like the because it's the sun and the moon that come together isn't yeah. it, for a conference and the other woman's the sun and she's yeah. all beautiful and glowing and yeah, it's like an eclipse because they only yeah. meet at certain times. Yeah, it is very very beautiful, but it's long. So yeah. instead, I will treat our listeners to the key collector. Which is quite short, but very sweet. Yeah. And this one, like, weirdly lives in my head. Like, I can't mm. stop thinking about it. Once there was a man who collected keys. Old keys and new keys and broken keys. Lost keys and stolen keys and skeleton keys. He carried them in his pockets and wore them on chains that clattered as he walked around the town. Everyone in the town knew the key collector. Some people thought his habit strange, but the key collector was a friendly sort and had a thoughtful air and a quick smile. If someone lost a key or broke a key, they could ask the key collector and he would usually have a replacement that would suit their needs. It was often faster than having a new key made. The key collector kept most of the common shapes and sizes of keys always at hand in case someone was in need of a key for a door or a cupboard or a chest. The key collector was not possessive about his keys. He gave them away when they were needed, though often people would have a new key made anyway and return the one they had borrowed. People gave him found keys or spare keys as gifts to add to his collection. When they travelled they would find keys to bring back with them, keys with unfamiliar shapes and strange teeth. They called the man himself the key collector but a great many people aided with the collecting. Eventually the key collector had too many keys to carry and began displaying them around his house. He hung them in the windows on ribbons like curtains and arranged them on bookshelves and framed them on walls. The most delicate ones he kept under glass or in boxes meant for jewels. Others were piled together with similar keys kept in buckets or baskets. After many years, the entire house was filled near to bursting with keys. They hung on the outside as well, over the doors and the windows and draped from the eaves of the roof. The key collector's house was easily spotted from the road. One day there was a knock upon his door. The key collector opened the door to find a pretty woman in a long cloak on his doorstep. 
He had never seen her before, nor had he seen the embroidery of the sort that trimmed her cloak, star-shaped flowers in gold thread on dark cloth, too fine for travel, though she must have travelled far. He did not see a horse or a carriage, and supposed she might have left them at the inn for no one passed through this town without staying at the inn, and it was not far. I have been told you collect keys, the woman said to the key collector. I do, the key collector said, though this was obvious. There were keys hanging above the doorway where they stood, keys on the walls behind them, keys in jars and bowls and vases on the tables. I'm looking for something that has been locked away. I wonder if one of your keys might unlock it. You're welcome to look, the key collector said, and invited the woman inside. He considered asking the woman what manner of key she sought, so he might help her look, but he knew how difficult it was to describe a key. To find a key, you had to understand the lock. So the key collector let the woman search the house. He showed her every room, every cabinet and bookshelf lined with keys. The kitchen with its teacups and wine glasses filled with keys, save for a few that were used more frequently, empty and waiting for wine or tea. The key collector offered the woman a cup of tea, but she politely refused. He left her to her searching and sat in the front parlour where she could find him if she needed and he read a book. After many hours, the woman returned to the key collector. It is not here, she said. Thank you for letting me look. There are more keys in the back garden, the key collector said and led the woman outside. The garden was festooned with keys, strung from ribbons and a rainbow of colours. Keys tied with bows hung from trees and bouquets of keys displayed in glazed pots and vases. Bird cages with keys hung on the tiny swings inside with no birds to be seen. Keys set into the paving stones along the garden path. A bubbling fountain contained piles of keys beneath the water, sunken like wishes. The light was fading so the key collector lit the lanterns. It is lovely here, the woman said. She began to look through the garden keys, keys held by statues and keys wound around topiaries. She stopped in front of a tree that was just starting to blossom, reaching out to a key, one of the many hanging from red ribbons. Will that key suit your lock? the key collector asked. More than that, the woman answered. This is my key. I lost it a very long time ago. I'm glad it found its way to you. I'm glad to return it, the key collector said. He reached up to untie the ribbon for her leaving it hanging from the key in her hand. I must find a way to repay you, the woman said to the key collector. No need for that, the key collector told her. It is my pleasure to help reunite you with your locked away thing. Oh, the woman said, it is not a thing. It is a place. She held the key out in front of her, at a height above her waist, where a keyhole might be if there was a door, and part of the key vanished. The woman turned the key, and an invisible door unlocked in the middle of the key collector's garden. The woman pushed the door open. The key and its ribbon remained hanging in midair. The key collector looked through the door into a golden room with high arched windows. Dozens of candles stood on tables laid for a great feast. He heard music playing and laughter coming from out of sight. Through the windows he could see waterfalls and mountains, a sky brightly lit by two moons and countless stars reflected in a shimmering sea. The woman walked through the door her long cloak trailing over the golden tiles. The key collector stood in his garden, staring. The woman took the key on its ribbon from its lock. She turned back to the key collector. She raised a hand in invitation, beckoning him forward. The key collector followed. The door closed behind him. No one ever saw him again. 
who comes up with that? <laughs> I know. Do you know what? That's the, the bit where it says, um, the piles of keys beneath the water sunk in like wishes. Like wishes, yeah. But also the foreshadowing to find a key you had to understand the lock. I had not noticed that before. <laughs> Zachary's the key. Yes. So good. I know. I think just like the it's like the intensity of that key imagery as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like it's quite overwhelming to think of so many tiny things and looking yeah. through all of them. Yeah. And they're yeah, everywhere. Yeah. I know. Oh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> right. Let's let's lighten it up a little bit. <laughs> My heart. We decided that we would think about what we would roll in the test to get into the harbour, I guess. Yeah, so you have to roll six dice and, I mean, it's when we see it, Zachary's doing it, it's not really explained why, mm-hmm. but you have to roll six dice to get in. You also have to drink a uh, drink. So, to quickly just explain the symbols on the dice, mm-hmm. there's bees for, like, I guess, stories and acolytes mm-hmm. is roughly what they symbolise. Mm-hmm. Keys are for keepers. Swords are for guardians. And then there's the crown, the heart and the feather, which are a wee bit harder to define because they all relate to the story like after this story, after this harbour and the starless sea. But there is a quote that I found that says, um, Once upon a time, crowns were for sovereigns, though long before they were crowns, they were stars. Feathers for heralds. Hearts worn by poets, open and aflame. All poets are pirates. And of course, symbols are for interpretation, not definition. Mm-hmm. So we've like we've talked about this before, and how you'd probably be more part of this story, and I always think I'd be more part of the one that follows. Mm-hmm. So for me, I would say I'd probably roll hearts or feathers. See, my answer is that I'm so like Zachary that I think I'd roll hearts. Ah, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> I hadn't thought about Zachary rolling hearts. I couldn't remember what he rolled. He rolls six hearts. Is it Dorian that rolls like six different things? Dorian rolls one of each, yeah. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. So yeah, on that note, I have a quote. I have two quotes actually. Mm-hmm. So the first one is where Zachary asks what the hearts and the dice mean. Mm-hmm. Zachary reaches for the glass, but his hand closes over an object next to it, a single die, an, an older one than the dice from the entrance exam, but with the same symbols carved into its sides. He picks it up instead. He rolls it onto the deck. It lands, as he expects it to, on the single carved heart. Knights who break hearts and hearts that break knights. What do hearts mean? Zachary asks. Historically, the dice have been rolled to see what Kismet has to say about a new arrival to this place, the keeper says. For a time, the results were used to gauge potential for paths. Hearts were for poets, those who wore their hearts open in a flame. Long before that, they were used by storytellers and rolled to nudge a story towards romance or tragedy or mystery. Their purpose has changed over time, but there were bees before there were acolytes and swords before they were guardians, and all of those symbols were here before they were ever carved upon a dice. There are more than three paths, then. Each of us has our own path, Mr Rollins. Symbols are for interpretation, not definition. I think the quote that I had was from Erin Morgenstern's Twitter when someone asked her what the mm. symbols were, so she's yeah. like taken from that. Yeah. 
again like i just love that line about for interpretation not definition because that's such like a mantra for this novel i think because you can just read it in so many ways and yeah and obviously... the symbols all seem to change meaning across the... yeah yeah i think that was a very purposeful <laughs> choice mm-hmm. but on that note of interpretation i have a question for you mm-hmm. what do you think it means <laughs> that this is what happens when mirabelle touches the dice Mirabelle looks down at the rubble and pushes something with the toe of her boot. The dice at her feet roll but do not settle. They fall into a crack in the floor and disappear. Oh. (laughs) I don't have an answer. I'm just curious. I wonder if it's like... I don't... Maybe it's not so much about what the dice do, but the fact that Mirabelle kicks the dice into a crack in the floor Mm -hmm. it's sort of like you can't like fate decides the paths yeah you can't decide like for Mm -hmm. her maybe Mm -hmm. but also she she has that line about she doesn't what is it she doesn't make things happen she just draws the doors yeah i I just think it's very accurate because like that's in the like the next scene Mm -hmm. after the quote that i read at first and i was like it's literally one of my annotations is what does that mean (laughs) yeah i wonder like yeah that they don't settle yeah do we know she's fate at that point don't think we do maybe that's like just a wee bit of foreshadowing then yeah to be like she doesn't because she was born there so she didn't do the entrance exam so they have no answer for no answer for what hers is because she's not a person so clever Um, and that leads us quite nicely on to the next question, though, is do you think you would be an acolyte, a keeper, or a guardian, if any? Mm-hmm. What do you think that mm-hmm. you would be? There's, like, elements of all of them that I like and I think apply to me, but I think that's just because, like, anyone who sort of reads and writes, I think, is going to relate to, like, mm. all of them somehow. Mm-hmm. Like, I would want to protect books like the guardians or, like, make sure that all the stories get told, like the keepers, but if I had to guess, I think I'd probably be an acolyte. Mm the acolytes are like dedicated to reading or hearing other people's stories and they don't tell any themselves instead they like just take in everyone else's and obviously like I would be sad not getting to write anymore but like I obviously just love stories and reading and books and so I think a life dedicated to reading or hearing stories would just be the dream nice so yeah that's why I decided interesting so my one was that i think i would end up an acolyte Mm. but i don't think i could bear it yeah like giving up your own voice to serve the voices of others is kind of my job yeah so i feel like i could be an acolyte but i don't think that i i i don't know i see you more as um, i was gonna say guardian actually but i don't know no maybe i think keeper i said what i'd like to be as a keeper yeah because they just make the doors and keep the keys yeah, I'd enjoy that. They make sure the stories get, like, yeah. found. Yeah. Like, yeah. Whereas the Guardians... Like, I don't think I could be a Guardian because I believe books are meant to live and die and not be preserved. Mm. So I feel like I'd be a better keeper because that, they help that to happen. Yeah. No, that makes that makes more sense. Um, yeah. But I have found a quiz. <laughs> so, so, to have the ultimate definition. <laughs> let's do... Let's see what Penguin says that we would okay. be... I'm so sure I've seen this quiz before. Yeah, probably. <laughs> so we need to keep a note of our, like, because it's A, Bs and Cs and you need to keep a okay. note of what you get the most of. Yes. So. At a party, you can be found 
A. At the centre of the room, entertaining everyone, it's probably your party. B. Listening and observing, you're more of a wallflower, you can be found curled up in the corner listening to someone spilling their heart out. Or C. Off on your own adventure, you left the party 20 minutes ago, or you're looking after a friend who's gone haywire making sure they don't get hurt. <laughs> uh, I'm probably B. Mm, a or C, A or C, A or C. I do like to go adventuring, but I do like entertaining people. Probably A. <laughs> Two, what is your favourite kind of story? A, anything as long as I'm telling it. B, anything as long as it's memorable. C, anything as long as it's action-packed. Probably memorable, I think. Cool. Yeah, I think probably same. Three, how do you react to an emergency? A, you've already planned for it. You're prepared and have everything you need. Wet wipes, snacks, a multi-toolkit with 27 different uses, absolutely. B, you're frozen. You tend to watch with horror as the events unfold, unable to speak, but at least you're there. C, creatively, you'll knock together the bed sheets if you have to. I feel like I'm a mix of all of those. I normally am prepared for things, but I think in reality it's probably B. I don't know what I would... But then I'm quite a good puzzle solver at times, so C might work as well. It's an emergency though, it's not, it's not a problem. Mm. Yeah, I'll go B then. Yeah, I'm probably B as well. I'm, yeah, I'm a big fury <laughs> in an emergency. I'm good like like half an hour after the emergency. Mm. Like when the, but like when the shit hits the fan, <laughs> then I'm alright. Yeah. But in the midst of it, I'm just too scared. Four. As a child, you were A, a bit of a performer, you were in all the shows, had lots of friends and told the best jokes. B, shy and quiet but pretty dedicated, maybe you practised the piano or always did your homework on time. Whatever it was, if you loved it, you were bound to do it well. C, rough and tumble, you were always running into danger but for good reason, your friends knew you'd be by their side no matter what. I'm B again. B again for me. (laughs) B for me. Five, you could never give up. A, your voice. B, your dedication, or C, your beliefs? I could never give up my voice. Mm, No, it'd be dedication or beliefs. Beliefs, I think. Okay, so what are you mostly? Uh, Mostly Bs. So we both got Acolyte. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, cool. Neither of us put any Cs, and they're the Guardians, and neither of us thought we'd be a Guardian. My last one was a C. Oh yeah, okay. (laughs) Okay, so yeah, I'll read them all out. Mostly bees, you're an acolyte. You're quiet, more of a listener than a talker, which is a good thing if you're an acolyte who commonly have their tongues cut out to show their dedication. They must also spend a full cycle of the moon in isolated contemplation before they commit to their path. Defined by a love of stories, you're selfless, kind and humble, withholding your stories in reverence to others. Your friends would call you sweet as honey, which is appropriate because acolytes are represented by the bee. I was three bees and two A's, so A's would have been a keeper, Mm -hmm. which... They have a little quote for this. They says, keepers must have spirit and keep it aloft. Oh. Keepers are represented by the key and are born performers. If you didn't want to be an actor as a child, you probably wanted to be a singer or comedian. Wrong. <laughs> Happy to learn your lines by heart and imbue them with life. When you speak, people listen. True. Which comes in handy because the keeper's role is looking after the stories, understanding them and making sure people hear them. They're also great at being prepared for anything. If you're ever hungry, ask a keeper. They're certain to have a snack handy, or at least know where to get one. The downside of this is that you're a bit of a hoarder, but then there is a reason that the underground library is hundreds of miles deep. (laughs) 
So yeah, I would take either of those. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm definitely meant to be an acolyte then. Yeah. Apparently, I feel like I am more of a keeper. It's just that I was a quiet child. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not quiet anymore. <laughs> the last little talking point that we had was five prettiest lines. So, do you have? Do you have some? I have eight. <laughs> Go for it. We might have some of the same. Oh, so. we definitely will. Um, okay, number one. A boy at the beginning of a story has no way of knowing that the story has begun. You need that like somewhere on a wall or on your body or something. It is the epigraph to my novel. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Uh, or do you want to like alternate? Yeah, let's alternate. Let's alternate. Okay. My top, my favourite line in the whole book is there is a door in the moon. Oh, yeah. Like, it makes me feel hopeful because I feel like when people look at the moon, they're looking for answers. And I feel like it's nice that, like, if no one has any answers and there's nowhere left to go, there's mm. a door in the moon. Oh, yeah. I just, yeah, that's my favourite thing. I've got, it doesn't look like anything special, like it contains an entire world, though the same could be said of any book. That's a good one. <laughs> my second one is making a witch laugh feels like a lucky sort of thing. <laughs> yeah because it just makes me smile he believes in books he thinks as he leaves the room that much he knows for sure yeah <laughs> I do not care for stars stars are made of spite and regret that was one of my runners up but it didn't, <laughs> it didn't make it but the world is strange and endings are not truly endings no matter how the stars might wish it so I love that I actually love the line right before that it's not on my list but when it's like but Chance doesn't fall in love with anything for long. Yeah. I really like that. <laughs> um, but no, my next one is occasionally fate pulls itself together again and time is always waiting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just Time is always waiting is such a good phrase. Mm-hmm. Similarly, I've got um, once very long ago, time fell in love with fate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've got from the very first page, the pirate is a metaphor, but is also still a person. Yeah, I've got two more. There are so many pieces to a person, so many small stories and so few opportunities to read them. I would like to look at you seems like such an awkward request. (laughs) (laughs) My runner-up, since you've got another one, was um, changes what a story is. Yeah. Uh, My last one is we are all stardust and stories. I knew that was going to be on the list. We didn't have any matching. I know that I mean that just shows how many how many good lines there are and like there's loads of my favorite ones that I've like already read out in quotes Mm -hmm. um like nights who break hearts and hearts that break nights is one of my favorites but I already read that yeah the one about like the key in the lock and the all of the innkeeper in the moon Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. is just beautiful yeah but also the one about it's the story sculptor and it's the very last line. It's like when they found out what she'd done, they cut off her hands. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why, but like that line just in itself has such yeah. so much story yeah. in it. So that was like all our sort of talking points that we decided we were going to do. But then I, <laughs> I've got like three more pages <laughs> of notes. Amazing. Hit me. Um, but it'll be discussion. It's not just going to be me monologuing. I want to talk about foreshadowing, mm-hmm. which is something that we have spoken about quite a lot today, but I have a specific example that I'd like to look at. Okay. 
So, Erin Morgenstern's great at doing it in ways where you genuinely don't notice it's foreshadowing until like a second or like third or fourth read. Mm -hmm. So, I was looking at a passage from near the beginning of the book, which is when Zachary has been asked to moderate a group discussion about video games and storytelling. Mm -hmm. Um, And this passage is like chock full of what I suppose you could call like the ethos of the novel, like a lot of the big ideas that Mm -hmm. she's writing about, and obviously hints at what's to come. So I'm not going to read the whole passage because it is really long, but I'm going to sort of like pick out moments and read those out because, you know, as someone who's like read the book recently, I'm just interested to know if you picked up on any of this Mm. because you've not reread it. So someone says when they're talking about like why you like a sort of story based game is isn't that what anyone wants though? to be able to make your own choices and decisions but to have it be part of a story. You want that narrative there to trust in, even if you want to maintain your own free will. This actually reminds me of a quote from a few chapters previous where Zachary says, reading a novel, he supposes, is like playing a game where all the choices have been made for you ahead of time by someone who is much better at this particular game. Mm. Um, and he thinks that after he sort of admits that like reading is like a form of escapism and how he wishes life could be like that yeah um so going back to like the group discussion Zachary adds onto that point especially if a game allows for multiple possible endings wanting to co-write the story not dictate it yourself so it's collaborative so my question is (laughs) do you think Zachary does co-write the story that is the novel that we are reading or have all his choices already been made for him and he's simply acting them out? No, because I think I think that it is what you've said. I think that he collaboratively writes it because Mirabel tells him that he has yeah. at the end. She, like, the whole structure of the story is that she has laid out all these doors and we know from the very beginning that he missed the first one. Yep. So that was a choice. That was free will, that he didn't open it. And then it's equally a choice that the moment where he comes out of the banquet in the cities of Honey and Bone and he sees six doors and then he doesn't go through any of them he goes through a random scribbled door in the rock that Mirabel's left him mm-hmm. I feel like that is when you know that he's a collaborator on the story yes more on that later okay I'll come back to that point but yes I do have another quote though sort of what you're saying and this is between Maribel and Zachary so she says this to him you're here because I need you to do something that I can't Maribel corrects him she shoves the sword at him hilt upward forcing him to take it it's even heavier than he remembers and you're here because you followed me you didn't have to I didn't have to no you didn't Maribel says you want to think that you did or that you were supposed to but you always had a choice You don't like choosing, do you? You don't do anything until someone or something else says that you can. You didn't even decide to come here until a book gave you permission. You'd be sitting in the keeper's office wallowing if I hadn't dragged you out of there. It's it's hard because is like Maribel's obviously pushing him. I think she's making him sound more passive than he actually is in order for him to be like, I'm gonna prove her wrong. Yeah. But then that brings up the question of whether Mirabel convincing him to do something means that he chose to do it or not. Mm. It's a puzzler. <laughs> I like the idea as well that, like, obviously we, for us as the reader, we need Zachary to keep doing things for the novel to progress. Mm-hmm. 
but there is a lot of time where he does where he's not doing very much mm-hmm. and he's like thinking about what he's gonna do and it's like you have this like need for him you're like do something man yeah yeah um yeah. but that's all that. but that's also like the video game thing isn't it where it's that he's he's the character walking about taking in all the you know setting mm-hmm. to be like okay what's my next move yeah which is like and you but yeah. you don't know because you're seeing it through his eyes you don't even know what it is you want him to do yeah and but it is quite cool that like when presented with anything like he does what he thinks he's supposed to do mm. with that thing mm-hmm. or he, he always tries to figure it out like the bit about you you read out the line about how he was considered in the stories of stories rather than things they had to crack open yeah and i think yeah. that's very telling mm-hmm and yeah, so like back to that video game story conversation that they're having. Another thing I wanted to point out is the list of terms that the group say makes a story compelling. Mm. So they decide that what makes a story compelling is change, mystery, high stakes, character growth, romance or sexual tension, obstacles to overcome, surprises and meaning. And to that, I have to say, that is everything that happens in this book. Yes, it is. (laughs) Every one of those applies to Zachary's journey. So I just think it's just so clever. It is very Um, clever. So there's actually loads more in that passage, but we'll just be here for even longer (laughs) if I keep going. So Morgan sounds great at foreshadowing. Let's move on. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so you mentioned this earlier, Madame Rollins. Yes. She calls Maribel honey child. Did you pick up on that? Like I I did pick up on it, but she also calls cat honey child. Yes, which is my next point. Do you not think that's very interesting cuz cat's about to set off to the new starless star sea. sea. Yes. She called her honey child. Mhm. It's just very good. <laughs> it's very good. I at first like I didn't pick up on it cuz I thought it was just like an affectionate an affectionate Turn. thing, but also that, like, Erin Morgenstern was, like, building a, what do you call it, like, a motif mm, of honey mm-hmm. being, like, a nice thing mm-hmm, all the mm-hmm. way through it. But then the idea, like, when you combine the words of, like, honey child, like, Mirabelle was born in the harbour. Yeah. And then Kat is about to go and basically birth the new harbour. Yep. <laughs> so clever. <laughs> so good. Okay, let's talk about references to the Night Circus. Which I know that you don't know, but, you know, I'll explain them to you. Sweet. So, yeah, The Night Circus is Erin Morgenstern's first novel, and, yeah, I want to talk about two Easter eggs. One has been confirmed by Erin Morgenstern. Another, I think I found, and she's not confirmed it. Okay. So I should probably, like, tweet her or something one day. Do it (laughs) with this episode. Yeah, I will. Okay, so, the confirmed Easter egg takes place when... At the end of one of the scenes I read it earlier, when Dorian takes Zachary through the wardrobe to see the harbour, basically in like its glory days, mm-hmm. and Zachary notes, A few shells down, there is a handsome young man with ginger hair so bright it borders on a proper red, browsing through one of the volumes. And that is Widget from the Night Circus, who I know means nothing to you, but it's a very cool detail, because in the Night Circus, Widget can like read a person's past simply by looking at them. Oh, so he's such a clever cameo to put in the Starless Sea. That's cool. I know, it's it's very cool. For the Easter egg, which isn't confirmed, but which I think is one, the short story, the story sculptor features a woman who sculpts stories, Mirabel Fate, but she experiments with all these different kinds of storytelling, mm-hmm. like all these different methods, and one line states. 
She studied with a clockmaker for a time and built cereals that could be carried like pocket watches and wound, though eventually their springs would wear out. And I think that the clockmaker mentioned is Herr Friedrich Thiessen from the Night Circus. He is a maker of very intricate and beautiful clocks that like move and they like act out scenes as time goes. Yes. And he's also a writer. That so, has to be it. Th- that has to be him, right? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I'll I'll tweet her in and see if she confirms that. Please do. I just that oh, it has to be true, right? Okay, so I have one one last detail, and it was again something that you like kind of mentioned. One of my favorite details of the book is that every chapter that follows Zachary starts with Zachary Ezra Rollins. Mm-hmm. So it's Zachary Ezra Rollins sits on the floor, blah 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 blah. Yeah. But there's a point near the end where Zachary has to pick between all these doors to go through, and like you said, there's a wall of doors. But instead of going through those, he searches the room for the idea of a door. So this like painted door that's almost hidden. And after he goes through that door, his chapters no longer begin with Zachary Ezra Rollins. Mm-hmm. They instead start with the son, son of, of the, the fortune teller. And so I think it's because he's finally found the right path, right? He's now fully part of the story. Because the in Sweet Sorrows, it's the son of the fortune teller. Yeah, he's named the son of the fortune teller in the story when he's a child who like misses the chance to go through the door. Mm-hmm. So for the rest of his life, he's Zachary Ezra Rollins. But now that he's on this path to mm-hmm. like die, have fate's harp in his chest, to kind of rebirth the Starless Sea. End the story. He's, yeah, ending it and now fully part of it. He is the son of the fortune teller mm-hmm. from Sweet Sorrows. Sweet Sorrows. So clever. It's so good. So I clever. Did, I did notice that and I appreciated it. Yeah. I was like, yep, um, I like that detail. So yeah, I think it goes without saying that there's so much more that we could talk about. There's really great references in it, um, like she mentions the Secret History, Haunting of Hell House, it's quite a cool reference, Edgar yeah. Allan Poe. We've not really touched on the antagonist in this book, there is an antagonist, which we've just like not mentioned. Eh. But, you know, because there's just so much story, and like a love for stories, and really interesting characters, it makes you think. The antagonist um, Allegra is interesting though, because she's not bad. No. Which is like... No. And she's almost sort of coincidental. Yeah. Her her story ends like not that far into the book. Like probably about halfway, maybe two thirds in. Yeah. And then there's still this whole other bit Act. of the journey yeah. to go. But yeah, she she is very interesting. She's more like just another problem to solve and you think she's the big problem and then Yeah, but she's she's not. not. Yeah. So do you have anything else to add or is that Yes, us? I do. Go for of it. Of course I go have for it. stuff to add. So I kind of went along the lines of the usual root section Mm -hmm. because I felt like this would be a book, since it's about words and stories, that all of the words and stories would be chosen very deliberately. Yeah. And like, obviously we've said symbols are for interpretation, (laughs) but they're just cool stuff that I wanted to share. So this is a fun fact, which I think makes the Starless Sea even cooler. Did you know that bees are one of the few animals other than humans who can perceive time with any level of specificity? Oh, no, I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) So, like, obviously other animals can perceive time with, like, the sun going up and down. Yeah. But bees can, like, perceive hours and minutes. Oh, yeah, was there not a test where they had them in, like, a dark room or something? Yeah, it was the whole thing. Yeah, I remember that now, yeah. So I feel like that makes the symbolism of the bee work even better with the fact that the bees... The kitchen is the bees. 
Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, the kitchen's the bees. The kitchen's the bees. It's so good. <laughs> but, like, the fact that they're the, the end mm-hmm. of the story and that the Starless Sea is, like, honey. Mm-hmm. So it's, like, it's like a product of time. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> but, yes, we're also here for some etymology because it is the root section and I do have some. So... I looked up the meanings of Zachary and Mirabel's names because they sounded biblical, and they are. Mm -hmm. So Mirabel means wondrous, which isn't really a shock given that she's meant to be beautiful and she's fate, but it's still pretty cool. I thought like if you're going to have a name for fate, wondrous is pretty good. Mm -hmm. But Zachary, which obviously comes from Zechariah, means God remembers or never forgotten. Yeah, I knew that. I knew you would know it, but... (laughs) When you get to the end of the book and you have that scene between Kat and his mum who are still waiting for him to return and his mum knows, like, she knows he will. Mm-hmm. It just, the fact that his name means never forgotten. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. It's so good. And the fact that, as well, like, when you think about his name changing from Zachary Ezra Rollins to the son of the fortune teller who never forgets him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Also, the word fate, even though you think of like the fates of Greek mythology, the word comes from Latin, fatum, which literally means that which has been spoken. Oh. And that comes from fare, which is just the verb to speak. Mm-hmm. And I guess like that makes sense, we all knew that. But I like the fact that Mirabel is known both as fate and the story sculptor, because like it means the telling. Yeah, yeah. Which I think is cool. Oh, that is cool. So yeah, that was just my extra little details that I thought are pleasing. Yeah. <laughs> about this book. There's so many pleasing details. Yeah, it's in this full book. of like really pleasing details. Yeah. But we have well, to stop sometimes. Yeah. Well, I'm very happy that you've read my favourite book and I'm, that you also enjoy it. <laughs> I'm very happy that I've read your favourite book. Also on the note of references, Oscar Wilde. Yeah, yes. The, the Dorian true, true, true. the whole Dorian thing just oh my yeah. heart. There's it. just so many like also, Alice in Wonderland, we kind of mentioned, mm-hmm. like, there's just... Narnia. Just, just Narnia. Just, like, every bookish reference is in there. <laughs> yeah, but it never... It doesn't feel shoehorned. No, it nice. just feels quite natural. There's a whole bit at the start with, like, uh, like hard-boiled fiction. He's mm. talking about, um, like, Raymond Chandler and Hammett a lot. And, like, I, I did a dissertation on hard-boiled fiction, so I enjoyed that as yeah. well. And you even have um, a little Harry Potter reference with, like, Cat and her scar. Yeah, she makes him a Ravenclaw scar. Which is just, like, it feels like it pays homage to where Erin Morgenstern's stories came from, Mm -hmm. which is Mm -hmm. nice. Do you think you'll read The Night Circus now that you've read this? I don't know, because people seem to have very split opinions between the two of them. Like, Mm -hmm. apart from you, when I look up people that have read both, people either seem to, like, love The Night Circus and hate Starless Sea, Mm. or love Starless Sea and hate The Night Circus. Mm. I probably will read it because I really like her prose. I think you'll like it. It's um, still about stories. But I won't read it for a while because cause I have too many other things to read. Yeah. I think maybe one day I'll do an infatuation on it. Yeah, well, I was leaving um, it for you to do an infatuation yeah, on. So I, I won't read it for a while. I'll, I might reread it. It's like a good, like, autumny, wintery one because mm. it's at, like, a magical circus and you've got, like, your caramel apples and you're, yeah. like, you know, it's Pop that kind of book. Stuff. Yeah. <laughs> it does appeal to me and I yeah. do want to read it. But I'm not going to lie, like, the Starless Sea has got inside my soul and really fucked me up. Yeah. So I don't think I can take that again for a while. It'll do that. <laughs> but fully recommend. Very good book. Yeah. Thanks, guys, for listening to us, you know, 
ramble. Ramble. That was fun for me. Okay, so that is us this week. If you have any comments or questions, our email is infatuatedpodcast at outlook.com. We also have social media, which is linked in the show notes, along with everything we talked about today, including the Infatuated Mix, which has all the music we mention. Thanks for listening to us talk for almost two hours about yeah. one book. About one book that you may or may not have read, but now you don't really need to. <laughs> no, you, no do. you do. You do. You do. <laughs> Um, no get it read interact with us about it tell us what you think share your theories share your favourite lines we'll have a big starless sea party yes and yeah please rate and review us on your podcast app because that helps get the podcast out there do it please and bye yeah bye